welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about our gaming fatal flaws. Sort of the bad habits that we carry from game to game that uh, define us in a sort of negative way as players. Now, Rob, I know you were playing something recently that made you think of this as our topic today. Uh, yeah, I think... So I've been playing a lot of um, Hearts of Iron 4, actually, which mm. is a World War II grand strategy game that... Uh, it, it has its issues, but I, I think the, the thing it gets, it gets across really, really well is that uh, everything about like planning for... The game starts in 1936. There's going to be some form of World War II. Maybe not the form yeah. you're familiar with, but like someone's going to start fighting someone else, and it's going to be huge, and it's going to be like a long-running war. And there's a lot of different technologies to research, and you really can't field the best equipment on every single front. Uh, nor can you actually like field a massive army at the same time you're fielding uh, high-tech gear. Yeah. Everything's very much a trade-off, and the trade-offs sort of depend on, on who you are. Uh, so the game I've been playing recently, I've been playing as uh, the British in, uh, in World War II, and when the game starts, you basically can't really mobilize an army uh, in advance. So like, it's, it's, it's possible for you to maybe uh, get the, co the country ready for war by the time that uh, you know, Chamberlain is making his deal with Hitler, over uh, over Czechoslovakia, you know, it's possible you could actually get the country on board and uh, get a lot of people in the armed forces so you're ready to fight in like 1938. But if you do that, it's going to have a pretty huge opportunity cost. Uh, and you yeah. still probably won't have as advanced or uh, battle-ready an army as the Germans do, who start with a far more militarized society. So what I ended up doing in this game is... Uh, is is a form of something I tend to do a lot in in a lot of different games, uh, which is that I tend to plan for like an ideal hypothetical future uh, yeah. where I'm going to have everything I can possibly need, rather than using the stuff that's available right now or like getting ready to do stuff uh, that like that that I need that I really should be able to do right now. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I I sort of call this like the BFG problem. <laughs> Which is that everyone, sure. always, everyone always talks about how great the BFG was in Doom. I hated that gun. I always hate the BFG. <laughs> because the BFG is is always something I'm never sure this is the right moment to use it. I'm always like, ah, I better hang on to this. Like, I don't know when I'm going to see ammo for this again. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to hoard it. And I, I sort of found myself doing that here again in Hearts of Iron, where I'm basically, uh, I just kept investing in technology research. And getting ready for fighting a really long war with a super elite army uh, with nothing but the best gear. But since I'm going to be getting better technology, might as well not buy that many weapons right now because it's going to be outmoded in a few years anyway. And that's that's like my fatal flaw in Hearts of Iron. But it's, it's sort of the same problem I see across genre after genre. I think I finished The Witcher 2 with like... 80 different potions that I could have used that would have really uh, would have really made it easier to complete that game. Uh, ditto with The Witcher 1. Like, I, I just, I tend to look at resources um, the moment they begin to feel precious or the moment I begin to feel that 
there's something better down the road that will do the same job more efficiently, I immediately like throw the brakes on everything and I'm like, better not do anything until I've got <laughs> the perfect setup. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that sounds like the <laughs> pray for the best, hope for the worst kind of thing. It's it's the, the turtling strategy, right? Like Yeah, very much so. And, and I've always a been bit. a turtle in RTS games, yeah. Sure, sure. I'm super glad that I actually got that right because you know you know me and not knowing uh, RTSs all that well. So good, good. I'll, I'll uh, put a little tip on my belt there. I I have um I have a similar problem with anything strategy related because I freeze up and feel like oh god I I don't think strategically very well uh, in in those kinds of scenarios, which I think is partially due to underexposure to the genre itself. Like I just haven't played enough strategy games and it is I, I say this all the time on this damn podcast but i i really do you know one day i'm hoping one day soon we can actually have like a little like get together and we can actually sort of play you, you can maybe guide me towards some of these uh some of the games and like actually get a little more comfortable with them but i i just freeze up and i'm like i don't think i can do this and i like psych myself out to some degree and it's like Who's judging you? The computer? You know, like, who, yeah. <laughs> it's not as if, like, I actually am being graded on, you know, it's not like I have a teacher standing over my shoulder or something. I mean, I guess in some scenarios, if you're playing something at a demo site or something, there's a little bit of pressure. Or you're streaming publicly, but I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, but you'll, you totally know like when you flamed thing. out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, who, who cares? You know, <laughs> I should probably be less performance anxiety uh, about, about this sort of stuff. So I, I hear that and like I, I, I hear your difficulties. My biggest fatal flaw as a gamer, as a player of games, whatever, uh, is my downward spiral. It's always my downward spiral. Okay. And it is it occurs whenever I am playing a game that is either incredibly difficult or obtuse or just requires a lot of mental resources. Uh, and if I'm not willing to give those resources that day, it just, it's a shit show. And we've talked about this at times uh, about like, you know, something like a uh, Dark Souls or something where it's like, mm-hmm. I just, st- I, I lose a little bit and I'm like, okay, okay, I can do this. And I go back in and, you know, after a couple of times, like it's as of, you know, diminishing returns starts starts to occur for me, emotionally speaking, basically. My, my can-do positive attitude starts to erode and I start getting frustrated, and I start getting mad, and I start going into this downward spiral of, you guessed it, what would be a better use of my time? And I start being like, I could be learning Spanish, I could be working on C sharp, I could, you know, and I go off and off. And I don't do this consciously. This is not like, oh, me sitting there saying these things, but I start thinking these things. And I just get worse and worse and worse at actually playing the game. And I just get more mad and more pissed off and more frustrated that I'm not a better at the game and b doing something else that I will get like a lot of value from. Uh, and it's it it really it's so frustrating and annoying because it's like, God, if only I could just keep that that cool head that I legitimately have for other things in life. Like I, you know, I can keep a cool head at an emergency situation on my ambulance. Like I can keep a cool head, you know, on a on a hard day at work or something like that. But but God forbid I have patience with a video game. <laughs> does it does it take so different weird. forms with, with different games? Are there are there games where this is more likely to happen and, and like genres where it's less likely? 
Yeah, for sure. I have a lot more patience with myself for platformers um, because I like them in general and I sort of, you know, I, I'm willing to deal with so much more frustration with them because I know that I will learn it. I know that I'll be able to get through a really difficult platformer uh, just in general because I've done it in the past. I have a history of doing it and being able to figure shit out. Like something like Donkey Kong Country, Tropical Freeze, Take 10 Drinks, I know. Um, is a ridiculously difficult game. It's actually really, really challenging and really hard, but I got through it just fine and enjoyed myself, at least for the most part. There were some difficulty spikes that were a little much. I actually think the second boss in that game is way too hard for the sort of second boss. But anyway, um, I was just like, no, I'll learn it. I'll figure this out. And I did, of course, and had a great time. And I, I'm sure if I could apply that attitude to something like a Dark Souls, I could do it. And, and in fact, like, it's a little ridiculous because I, I got through Bloodborne, which is a really hard game. Like, I, I got all the way through that game. So I don't know. I don't know why it didn't, uh, it didn't happen for me with Dark Souls 3. I think Dark Souls 3 was a, a little bit of a weird circumstance where I, I put a good 60 hours into that game. Uh, and I actually got very far into it. I didn't, I, I, I probably have about a third left, but I, I got a good two thirds into the game. And I was demoralized by something else in that game, which is a completely <laughs> goofy thing. But I had gone through this whole sort of uh, quest to get... Uh, the, there's one sort of helper character who can really, really make uh, a particular boss fight pretty easy. But it requires going through the whole game and doing all these weird things for this supporting character. He's Sigurd the Onion Knight, and he's like this goofy guy. And it's actually like kind of the one real instance of humor in that game is just this goofy guy who he's always in trouble and he's kind of hard to find. And I had done all this stuff in all these levels to kind of get him to do this quest with me. And I showed up at this boss and I was like, all right, where's Sigi? Sigi never showed up. And I basically put the game down and never picked it up again. <laughs> I was just so demoralized. Did you ever figure I mean, out what happened? It was some that? Was glitch. It, was glitch. It, was, it must have been some glitch because I had done all of the things. And it's, and it's a weird kind of long list of things, too. It's like, find him at this weird place. You have to roll off an elevator at first to sort of find him and have a first conversation with him. You have to help him beat some other enemy. You have to find him in all these, like, obscure places and other parts of the game. And I did. <laughs> And, like, this was after my 15 in-game hours of, of trying to beat that one boss. Um, the Abyss Watchers, uh, which is not even late in the game. It's, like, the fifth boss in the game or something. Uh, but 15 hours of my life in-game just trying to beat that boss and just sort of farming souls and farming souls and farming souls to at least level up enough to... Uh, to get somewhat comfortable and then blasted through the next three areas of the game because I was so overleveled at that point. No problem on any of the bosses between that and uh, the, the, the one that I sort of stopped on. And it was just, I think it was just a, a matter of like, I was already softened up by that 15 hours that I almost quit the game on. Then I went back to the high high of like, really blasting through several areas of the game, which when you're making progress in one of those games, it feels so good. It feels wonderful and amazing. You feel like a god. You're just like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm making it through a really hard game. And then and then just missing Sigurd was, it just, just killed me a little bit, I think. It just, it just, it, it was just like, man. <laughs> so was that like an instant like quit thing or did that kick off the spiral where slowly like every time you're playing you're thinking about other ways you should be spending your time? 
It j- I just ended because I, I had had that spiral multiple times in that game. You know, yeah. many, many times, especially during the sort of uh, my war of attrition with uh, the Abyss Watchers and that, f- oh my God, that fucking boss fight. Uh, you know, I had, I had spiraled so many times. <laughs> I had done that downward spiral. It was close. I was close to quitting uh, on that, that other boss on the Abyss Watchers. Uh, but I was, like, very pleased with myself when I made it through. Like, I, I think you are with the Souls games. You know, you're, you're typically pretty happy with yourself when you actually make it through a challenge. Uh, but I spiraled so many times in that in that time period. I didn't even spiral with the Sigurd thing. I just pretty much shut the game off, and I don't think I picked it up again. I think I was just like, yeah, I just can't, man. I just, <laughs> I'm missing Sigurd. I did all this shit. He's not even there. It was just it was just like a Santa isn't real kind of moment. <laughs> uh, but typically, I really do have this problem. And I have this problem in games where it's just frustrating me, even if it's not an incredible mechanical challenge. Um, you know, I, I've had this issue kind of happen with... Oh, well, I certainly had this issue happen in The Witness, uh, which is not a mechanically challenging game by any means. It's it's uh, it's it's a game that challenges your beliefs in life potentially, uh, but but also it's it's intellectually challenging certainly, in a lot of ways. Uh, so it, it happens to me whenever I feel like I'm not good enough. Let's put it that way. I think that's the real problem here. It's it's whenever I feel like I am not up to par. My mechanical skills are not up to par. My intellect is not up to par. I am not good enough for this. And that's what sort of causes a spiral where I'm like, fuck this, man. I should go learn another language. And, and you know, I get mad at myself for not, you know, uh, using my time wisely, basically. I, I get like an old grandma voice that's like, the hell are you doing wasting your time? You know, uh, which I don't think that games are always a waste of your time or I probably wouldn't be doing this job. So, so. It's a little weird. There's a lot of <laughs> psychology, I guess, that kind of goes into this, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, uh, I just I tend to fixate a little bit on. Um, I tend to fixate on future rewards. I guess is mm-hmm. the way I put mm-hmm. it, but I don't know. It's it's also partly an aversion to. Um, I don't know. I guess it's it's a combination of like a hoarder's impulse, sure, and at the same time, like an anticipation of uh, how much better things will be to do them perfectly later uh, than to do something perfectly adequate now, yeah. which is really and, I, and honestly, I think part of this though was developed from the way games used to be, sure. Uh, because remember, <laughs> so okay, taking the BFG example again. In a modern Doom game, I think even Doom 3 worked like this. The new Doom definitely works yeah. like this. Yeah. The right tool for the job, for the encounter, is going to be sitting by the encounter. And there <laughs> yeah. will be ammunition for that tool all throughout the encounter. Possibly even self-replenishing ammunition. So that there's literally no way. You can hit a point where you just do not have the resources... Uh, to proceed successfully. But when I started playing games uh, ages and ages ago, like the original Doom was a game where if you were too profligate with your good equipment, your good weapons, uh, you could find yourself in real trouble 
uh, later on. Like, everyone talks about, oh man, there's nothing like that Doom shotgun. Yeah, the Doom shotgun was okay. Like, it was a cool gun. It had a nice animation. <laughs> but that's not the reason why everyone remembers it. The reason everyone remembers it is because it was the one weapon that, like, ammo was pretty much always plentiful. And it was the weapon that really you should get through most of the game using and everything else you switch to, like, situationally. That was, like, basically how Doom, I think, kind of wanted you to play. Uh, And I remember vividly um, getting insanely frustrated with the Cyber Demon encounter in in the original Mm. Doom. Do you remember this? Vaguely. I I only played the original Doom, like, way later. Uh, So I I sort of miss the cultural zeitgeist of Doom, but I do sort of vaguely remember, like, the Cyber Demon stuff uh, in general. Yeah, go on, go on, sorry. No, so, I mean, the Cyber Demon encounter, uh, the the first one, I think think later it shows up maybe as, like, as a less special enemy later, but the first time you encounter it, uh, you're whisked into this death arena, and it's this scary as hell encounter. You step into the level, and... It's basically like a giant, like multi-football field across, like octagon or something like that. I think it's supposed to be a circle, but hey, we can't do circles in this era, so everything's a little bit, <laughs> everything's a little bit uh, of of a uh, polygonal shape. And uh, you go around, and there's rocket launcher ammo everywhere. And then once the cyber demon spotted, spots you, it, it unleashes this, uh, at the time, blood curdling. Uh, I suspect it's not actually that blood curdling. <laughs> I suspect it's probably like a shitty little MIDI sound effect. Sure. But at the time, that was one of the most terrifying things I'd ever encountered. And then what you have to do is basically, like, uh, you know, play cat and mouse with this thing through this arena, firing rockets at it. And basically, it's also firing salvos of rockets. And I think one or two hits from that thing and you're dead. And Mm. I started to get really fucking frustrated. Because, like, there were a lot of times, like, this thing's just absorbing rocket hits. Uh, It seemed like I could be fighting for, like, 20, 30 minutes, popping rockets off with this thing. And it just wouldn't, it wouldn't go down. So I ended up, like, reloading a save from a few levels earlier. And saving all my plasma rifle ammunition. And I just refuse to use the plasma rifle. And I get to the cyber, cyber demon encounter. And it does its whole like, thing. And <laughs> yeah. this time, instead of using the rockets that are sitting around out there, uh, I just sort of start getting in its face with the plasma rifle, uh, which was much higher damage and higher rate of fire. And I basically just like flamethrowered that thing to death. Uh, and, it, and it made it a lot easier. And, like, so clearly that was an encounter I sort of hacked, but what I learned from that was, what I took away from it was, okay, so you never know when you're going to really need your high-value weapons. So even though it's fun to use them, you should really hang on to them as long as you possibly can. And so that same impulse is, like, why in games where you can, like, carry, like, a ton of grenades... I tend to just hoard grenades, right? Because I'm like, this is probably going <laughs> to yeah. be useful somewhere. Uh, in a survival game, uh, like uh, when I was playing State of Decay, I never wanted to take good equipment out in the field because I was like, well, there's probably going to be some moment where we really need uh, the, the the high-tech weaponry. And so for the moment, like this crappy old club uh, will do the job. Yeah. 
And that, like, it just happens again and again in every game. And the thing is, I know it actually makes me less effective because now games don't even, like, work that way anymore. They want you yeah. to use tools as you get them. Like, the, the current design ethos, I think, is get, like, give players stuff that they can have fun with and don't feel, like, obligated to. Yeah. But I'm still hung up. Like, I'm still kind of a product of this era where you could totally hit a point in the game where it was like, screw you. You uh, you didn't use your resources adequately six <laughs> levels ago. And so now you're going to have to replay all that or just try to grind out this impossible encounter. And uh, and it's especially a fatal flaw when you start talking about stuff like strategy games. Where yeah. um, the idea that you can just hang out until you have like an overwhelming force at your disposal. That's just not how strategy games work. Uh, right. It's it's not. They don't. They're really like especially RTSs. They're designed to frustrate that, and so sort of refusing to do things unless you've got all the tools you need to get them done uh, is is a quick recipe to to failure. But it's something I'm constantly fighting against. Like when I'm playing Company of Heroes, which is one of the most like frenetic RTSs. Uh, out there where like the point of the game is this ebb and flow back and forth battle across resource points you can't hold on to things for that long uh you just have to sort of keep flowing around the map i know that's how the game works like intellectually i know that's like i need to be comfortable with that but the moment like a, a piece of territory starts slipping away or the moment i like find out where the enemy is i'm like okay stop doing everything (laughs) <laughs> assemble all your forces in this one area of the map, ignore everything else and just try to hit them hard in one place. And so I'll do that and like I'll roll over you know, one strategic point and lose three. But like it's something I'm constantly watching for and it really doesn't agree with how most games are actually made now. Yeah. It's funny you're, I, I'm hearing you say this and I, I sort of do these things in real life um like, I'm not, like, an actual hoarder or anything, but I definitely will, like, save my favorites of a thing for later. And I'm like, no, I'll, I'll save my favorite for later. Uh, like, if there's, like, a flavor of food that I like, I will, like, save it for later. Save it for later. It's always going to be better later. Everything's always going to be better later because it's impossible to, like, enjoy the moment. You have to always sort of, uh, you yeah. got to plan ahead, man. You got to plan ahead because life is terrible and bad. So you got to plan ahead. <laughs> Uh, it's it's definitely something I, I hear. Um, and I wasn't playing um, terribly resource-intensive games until far later in life. And I, I still honestly don't, to the, for the most part. I still am, you know, sort of very much oriented towards puzzle games and adventure games and platformers and, and, and things like that. Um, but, I man, I hear it. I so Wait, hear that. You're telling me that, like, when you were playing Alien Isolation, for instance, yeah, you weren't, like... Oh, I can't use a noisemaker now. This isn't nearly important enough. (laughs) Nope. I think I used one noisemaker in my entire playthrough. Right. Not even kidding. Like, because it's like, you might need it later, dude. Like, it's. But then you end up with, like, so much gear that it's like, oh, you can't get any more crafting materials because you're basically full up on your inventory and you're not using anything. But I'm still like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to hide in this closet for 15 more minutes and, uh, you know, and I'll fling the. I'll, I'll fling the noisemaker when when it's really important. Exactly, exactly, and it's like, 
Oh, okay. I, I got by that without needing anything. Uh, but, you know, I could have gotten by it in half an hour ago <laughs> if I had just <laughs> used the fucking thing they wanted me to use. But yeah, I, I get it. I so get it. It's because you never want to be caught with your pants down. I feel, for me at least, that's the feeling I'm yeah. always like, I got to be prepared. No, I am prepared. Not, I'm not getting caught with my pants down. I've got all my shit. And it's like if you're if you're thinking about it, it's like as if you're you're walking around with like a massive backpack and three other like duffel bags, and like you're 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 barely making it down the street because you're so weighed down and encumbered by shit. But you're like, no, I need all of this. All of this is necessary. The world might end tomorrow, so you know. Um, yeah, I get that. I so get that. <laughs> Man, and, and God, while we're talking about alien isolation, it just, oh. God, that game was so good. I, I, I recently played Prey, and uh, uh, it's 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 taken the right vibes from from all of the games that w- you and I both love. I this think. is an the this is an arcane game, right? Dishonored, yeah, it's an arcane game. Okay. Um, but I think it's also going to let you hoard stuff. Um, there is a, a <laughs> there is a really a, great a mechanic. We'll also uh, yeah. let you hoard stuff. It's going to let you hoard shit. Well, there's a mechanic in the game where you're picking up junk all over the place, right? Just like in a Bioshock or or a somewhat in Dishonored. There's plenty of junk in Dishonored. It's just not as junky, I guess. Um, but then you can, you can actually use it to recycle all of your junk into raw materials. Like, like, you know, this material, that material, and this material. And then you can actually fabricate cool stuff from it. And I know I'm going to... I'm going to be scouring every inch of this world, and it's a big-ass, beautiful, open world, too, um, for every piece of junk so that I can make sure to have every cool thing uh, imaginable. I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... So this is one of those things... To a degree, I just have to accept this is who I am. Yeah. And I'm always going to play games a little bit like this. I'm always going to be... I don't know, maybe I shouldn't though. Shit. Now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, no, just just enjoy the BFG. When life gives you a BFG, fucking let it rip. Just yeah. just, just do it. And instead yeah. I'm I'm like, oh I better I better save this. It's like my neighbor, uh, for, for years and years, uh, in my old neighborhood back in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, after he retired, he and his wife bought a really nice Cadillac. Nice. And I swear he must have washed and waxed that thing like twice a week, um, <laughs> and like I don't think would even turn it on to back it out into the driveway. Like wow. I think he just like leave it in neutral and sort of like footsie it into the driveway. Yep. And like he just took such meticulous care of that damn thing, and then like once a month, you'd see him and his wife like go on a Sunday drive in this mm-hmm. Cadillac. For okay. everything else, it was like. God, I don't even know what their their main day to day car was. I want to say it was like a, a Chevette or something like that. It was, sure. it was some yeah. it was some piece of crap. Uh, no, no, no. It was an old Escort. God, it was a really old Ford Escort. Oh, good. Uh, like really old. Like predates even the the ones that had the um, automatic belt buckles. Uh, th- this was like when it was sort of a weird looking hatchbacky kind of like thing. Yeah. Anyway, so they drive this piece of crap, and in the meantime, this gleaming Cadillac never never went anywhere. And I never want to be that person, right? I never want to yeah. be the person that's like, hmm, that's my Cadillac. Worked my whole life to be able to get that. Better not ever enjoy it. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't want to be that person. So it's, it's one of those things where I, like, I'm trying to figure out, 
to what degree I just sort of accept this and work within those limitations, and then to what degree I need to work on my gaming fatal flaw much as I need to work on my flaws as a human. You know what I mean? It's 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 yeah. like, and in strategy games, I kind of feel like it's it's sort of at a point where I don't have the luxury to not finally deal with this because it is making me worse at like a lot of my favorite games. Yeah. Uh, so like that's just that's just not going to fly, and. I need to be more comfortable in those like suboptimal situations, but you know I will always sort of snap back to the that point where it's like, no, better better not do anything until until the timing is right. Like I think I'd, I I think I'd have made a great elf in like some sort of like high fantasy nonsense, right? Where it's yeah. like, no, you are no humans, you are too hasty, you are too hasty. In the fullness <laughs> of time, we will we will find our moment to strike. It's totally true. And it's because, you know what it's because of? I mean, like, I don't know, for me anyway, it's because all through grade school, every fucking fable you learn about is about people who are industrious oh, and that's save true. things. That's and like, true. oh, you save it, the good squirrel who saved for the winter and everybody else fucking starved oh, to the death. The grasshopper like, deserved to get it in the neck, right? Yeah, like, that's, you know? that's the point of that story. Every fucking story. Is all about being industrious and saving, 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 and basically hoarding. That's all you learn as a little kid in America's school system. Well, maybe now it's different. I have no idea. I was in school a thousand years ago, but still, oh, and like, yes, of course, uh, it's it is very good to be industrious and save some things. That's not a bad idea, but like to the extreme, it's not healthy, man. Well, it's, it's it's making us it's making us a little cray cray, and it's yeah. like, come on. No, it messes you know? up. It messes with your head too because then it's like i don't know if i want this thing or whether i don't want or if i just feel this like reflexive aversion to consuming it because i've been told i shouldn't consume things i want uh i better better hold on to them i think it's like the obverse of like clean your plate where it's like no small child (laughs) don't pay attention to whether or not you're hungry if you do not eat every fucking thing on that plate, you have failed on some on some level. <laughs> totally. And it's like, boy, why does everyone have a weird relationship with food? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. I yep. think there's definitely like a lot of the lessons you're taught as a kid is about putting off gratification. But yeah, I think like because there because is there a fable about somebody just like. Being in tune with their like real wants and desires, like actual and just, like, needs. Yeah, yeah. Like, is there a fable <laughs> about that? Like the fucking happy ass grasshopper who, like you know, knew his knew his knew his time was limited, and made yeah. the best use of it possible. Slept when he was sleepy, ate when he was hungry, didn't had a put balance off having fun in life. Yeah. You know, had a nice balance going on. Yeah, <sighs> we. That's, the, that's, that's those the are the fables fable we, we needed. needed. Yes, exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> And I think, God. and I think, like, I think those fables kind of used to exist, right? This is kind of like classical, like, uh, I mean, this this is kind of a, a foundation of a lot of strains in classical thought, uh, not the Stoics, mm. obviously, but like true Epicureanism uh, is is a little more like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm 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 so mad. I'm so mad about everything I I learned. As Basically, a child. I just. <laughs> I just wish I'd been taught that it was okay to use the BFJ when it showed yeah, up. Exactly. If your third grade teacher, uh, you know, put a, sh- a hand on your shoulder and was like, son, sometimes, sometimes you got to just let your BFG blow. All right. 
that's it's okay sometimes. That would have been an oddly loaded to... turn of phrase to use with a child, but <laughs> I sure, know. go for it. Uh, like, thank you, third grade teacher. But yeah, um, <laughs> use yeah yeah uh, use ye BFGs while you may. Yep, yep. I think that's uh, that should probably be our episode title. Yeah, as well as well. <laughs> um, yeah, yep. I agree with that. All I right, agree with I think, that wholeheartedly. I think then we should not hold on to this weekend correspondence any longer. I agree. We're going to read it. We're actually going to go on and, and read the weekend correspondence. I'll, I'll start us out because this is, this is, such, this is so a question for you. And okay. uh, I'm right. going to broaden it a little bit here uh, at the, at the end. But uh, Shane from Austin asks, If I'm dreadfully out of shape, can I still take a beginner's jujitsu class? Or is a prerequisite level of fitness necessary first? If I need to work on other things first, what should those things be? Boxing? And I'll just add to Shane's question here. Um, mm-hmm. Let's also, like, consider it also from a non-specific standpoint. Like, you know, if you're just, if you're just like, in a lousy place with fitness, what are the first things to work on? What are the first, what are, what are the first, uh, what, what's the foundation that you can build from? Yeah, totally. Uh, so I'll, I'll address uh, first the specific question about jiu-jitsu. And uh, this is coming from a new... I, I've only trained jujitsu for a few months, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make this broad enough for martial arts in general, because I know a lot more about boxing. But uh, even specific to jujitsu, no, you don't have to be in great shape to begin. I would say if you have an interest in something and uh, you go to a school, I think the most important thing here is to go to a school that respects your limitations, respects you know, sort of where you're at. And a good teacher will say, hey, you know, okay, I get it. I get that maybe you haven't worked out in a while or whatever. We're going to work with you. We're going to work with you to attain your goals, basically. Uh, Any good teacher worth their salt will do that. Absolutely. They'll push you, but they will not uh, tell you to, you know, uh, go over your limits, basically. Um, and if you if you want, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to get a baseline of fitness before going to martial arts because it is very very intense. You might feel a little, you might feel a little drained. You might feel a little, you know, self conscious potentially if you just go right in. I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying you know if you think that might be a possibility, uh, just getting a good little sort of core baseline of fitness is great. Uh, be able to walk a couple of miles, and then uh, if it, if it's a possibility for you. I know it's not a possibility for everybody, but being able to run a couple of miles is always great. Uh, I would start off on a run-walk program, and I can totally link some of those, but basically what a run-walk program is, and this this works for everybody. This is uh, the more broad question as well. Uh, like a couch to 5k or a run-walk program will have you walking at first and running a portion of a specific distance. Say your goal is a mile or a mile and a half. You'll start out walking most of it, uh, and then sort of doing some running, uh, maybe something like walk for two minutes, run for one minute, that sort of thing. And it, and it very slowly throughout, you know, a few weeks gradually uh, tips that ratio in favor of running until you're running that entire time. And then you'll actually sort of build on your distance. Uh, those are great uh, for folks who haven't worked out in a long time, but are, you know, more or less able to run. I know some people just can't run and that's totally okay too. You can do a lot of core work. Uh, typically, even if you can't run, uh, there's a lot of good sort of exercises you can do like right in your home, even if you're, you know, sort of uh, self-conscious about going outside or that sort of thing, which I know is, is definitely a thing for some folks. Uh, also, I can also link some stuff in the show notes. There's actually a lot of good free sort of workout programs available and good sort of starter workout programs available online. Uh, but if you can do very simple things like 
a few push-ups, uh, some sit-ups, you know, some jumping jacks, things like that. Those are a great way to start. Uh, you know, if you can get yourself to like 15 minutes of those nonstop, that's an excellent, excellent place to start with that kind of stuff. And you can also do, um, uh, I also really, really love jump rope as, as a good sort of weight loss tool and general fitness tool and general sort of agility tool. Uh, and jump rope is also something you can do in like in your home, in the privacy of your home, if, if that's an issue for you. Uh, so those are all some some good starter points. But if, you, if you're able to run, running really is the best way to kind of get uh, just a generally good cardiovascular base. Uh, and if you're going to be boxing, uh, thinking about boxing, you will definitely want to be running first. I had a boxing coach who actually told me once, like, uh, if you're going to be serious about boxing, you have to be a competitive runner first, which I was, so that was fine. Uh, but like running races and actually caring about your times and stuff like that. Because boxing is is probably the most exhausting thing I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, and I, I say this as somebody who's been a long distance runner since they were seven. <laughs> so like boxing will take it out of you faster because it's, it's your entire body uh, working really, really, really hard. So running is a good idea for that. And uh, yeah. Yeah, those are those are some good uh, some good tips. I've definitely designed uh, fitness programs for people who were totally you know sedentary uh, before. So I know there's a lot that kind of goes into that, and there's a lot of psychological weight that goes into that too. So I would say like no matter what, like seriously, no matter what, uh, whatever, however you feel about your body or however you feel about doing it privately or not, um, stick with it and find something you don't hate. And even if that's as simple as literally fucking putting on music you like and dancing around your apartment for 20 minutes, that's fine. Like, find a thing that you don't hate, make it a habit, make it part of your life, and that will help so, so much. It really it really is a good way of uh, kind of getting into the habit of exercising, and then, then maybe you can kind of take your fitness goals further from there. This is my very long-winded response. <laughs> Hopefully that was helpful for someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're far more right. qualified to answer that than I am. So, well, I'm just I'm just a fitness nut, you know. It's a, it is it is. I will say this: uh, I've definitely hurt myself by being a fitness nut, but it also has been a very positive thing in my life, and I'm very grateful for it uh, in terms of physical and mental health for sure. It it helps me out a lot. So, um, we have another short-ish question here from Seb. And Seb writes, is the increase of early access games encouraging traditional developers to move to an agile model of development? And what do you think the impact of this is going to be on the wider industry in terms of games quality, budgets, genre, jobs, and media? Thanks, Seb. I think it was like four GDCs ago. Like every third talk was how to agile something. Right, um, okay. And I tend to be a little skeptical of... Like to like to the point where I was hearing so much about agile that it was uh, that it started to see seem very trendy and uh, we'll get to that in a second. But like agile was was kind of developed as a, a way to supplant the waterfall method, oh. uh, which was that the waterfall method is more traditional, but I also think is perhaps more derived from old models of project management that predate computing. Okay. Uh, so that you've got sort of a very top-down command and control approach to developing a product. And, like, orders and instructions cascade down from, like, the leadership and the and the, the project stakeholders down to the team levels. Um, 
And I see. And I also think there's a bit of uh, rote procedure in there as well, where you also, as as the water is as the water is falling, uh, it's <laughs> it's hitting uh, clear uh, milestones in in the life of of product development, so that you don't you don't code anything uh, until everyone's agreed on what the hell the project goals are, what the key features are. Um, like literally you don't do anything until you've locked as much as possible into place. And only then do you start the work of actual development. And then you this don't do any QA. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Until you've pretty much finalized the product and then you can start doing QA because otherwise what's the point? Yeah. And Agile, I think... Okay, so my understanding of Agile... I'm looking at a spreadsheet right now, yeah. actually, of like... <laughs> I'm looking at Agile versus Waterfall versus Scrum versus Kanban. Uh, oh, I don't know. Never, I don't know that one. Never um, heard of that I'm, one. I'm not, I've never been clear on what the, uh, <laughs> what the Scrum versus Agile uh, debate actually is. We, I, um, here's Agile. I have a definition here. I'm just going to read from this amazing smart sheet. Agile software development is based on an incremental, iterative approach. Instead yep. of in-depth planning at the beginning of the project, Agile methodologies are open to changing requirements over time, encourages constant feedback from the end users. Cross-functional teams work on iterations of a product over a period of time. The work is organized into a backlog that is prioritized based on business or customer value, or whatever. This is for like any software development. Yep. So I, I can see some similarities there, maybe some slight differences with, uh, you know, specific game development. But yeah, okay, I, I, here we go. Now we, we learned something today. Please go on, go on. Yeah, uh, so I, I think there were a couple other things that drove people to Agile. And one of those, like from, from where I started to really encounter um, the almost evangelical drive towards uh, Agile <laughs> development a few years ago, uh, one of the things that also motivated it was you started working with a lot more distributed teams. And <laughs> so the waterfall method just became clumsier as you start having projects that are developed between uh, different teams working remotely on specific features. Suddenly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put everything on hold until literally every single team is at the same sort of milestone point and then give them the green light. Like, it was just very cumbersome. So. Agile was also, as part of its focus on rapid iteration and turning around build after build and then reviewing it and then improving it and then making another build, in addition to that, it also allowed, uh, like at least in some of the talks I heard, it also allowed these distributed teams to sort of just forge ahead with their own uh, products, with their, with their own parts of the product. And then it was sort of on the project managers to eventually like sort of Voltron those pieces together. Um, hmm. to a degree, Agile seems like, and boy, like I'm, I'm actually really interested to hear uh, what our friends in development uh, have to say about this. Yeah. So, two things that I've learned in my life, uh, and I've, I've never worked in software development, but to a degree, these are these are project management models, and they're they're specific to software development. But like the thing, the one thing, the one consistent thing I would say that I've learned about project management. Uh, is that there's always a desire to think some new methodology uh, is is going to revolutionize the the way thing the, the way you're doing business and, and result in, yeah. in higher quality output. But in my experience, 
methodology is only good as the accountability driving it. And I think in software development, as in a lot of other areas, a lot of people fall down on accountability and it doesn't matter what, um, you know, paradigm you're using. If you don't, Waterfall, I suspect, could work as well as Agile, uh, provided you're good at managing one of those two methods. Uh, If you don't have good managers in place, then you're going to run into more problems. I will say Agile always seemed a little intimidating in that it seemed like it required a lot of experience and um, agility across teams yeah. that is a scarcer commodity than than you might think, even in yeah. software development. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, <laughs> the only thing I would say that's uh, potentially a, a, a a definite uh, bonus here to this sort of thing is the that iterative idea. And uh, the way I've always sort of taught game design in, in courses has been this sort of play-centric design process where it's you prototype something, you play test it, you, you, you know, sort of iterate on the prototype, you make it better based on that testing. You kind of rinse and repeat until you have something really great and really awesome. And if, if Agile actually allows you to do that a little faster or a little better, that seems... Like, it would be great, but I, I completely agree with you that it, it really kind of depends almost entirely on the sort of quality of the managers and the ability of the team to work with that than it does, on, you know, any magic solution since those yeah. don't exist. And a bad manager is going to screw up no matter what uh, oh, yeah. management paradigm you're you're employing. I, I do think that early access and early release almost does force your hand into... Uh, into moving to an to an agile agile model, but I suppose I suppose there's also a point where like uh, th- there's probably a point where this becomes an issue of semantics, right? Where you could still be doing early access using a waterfall model. It's just you de- define the process as being about each build, and you're still following right. each step. You're still following that sort of hierarchical uh, construction method. It's just now you're doing it on a faster basis. Uh, to keep up with the tempo of early access. But it does seem like early access uh, development encourages uh, rapid iteration because, like, literally you're kind of using a lot of your audience as guinea pigs, but they're paying guinea pigs who expect you to solve shit as it services, Uh, at which point you really can't wait for, you know, the full picture to come in. You've kind of got to start, like, iterating on features as people are reacting to them. Yes. I agree with that, too. Now, I guess the second part of this question, what's the impact going to be on the wider industry? Um, if, the, if the question is the impact of, like, early access games, I think we've already seen it. Like, I think I think the revolution is is here, uh, and it's possibly even come and gone. Uh, the, the impact has been, it's it's to, the negative impact is that it's kind of flooded the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is more of a neutral impact, but it's also very much changed how games are marketed and, and how you reach your audience. Uh, the positive impact is, I think, undeniably, it seems like early access has also been attended by a pretty decent variety of uh, of games. Yeah. And a lot of games that are sort of kept in the oven long enough until they're, uh, you know, until they're baked all the way through. They're pretty good, yeah. Um, yeah. On the other hand, fully half those games are survival games. So, I don't, True. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That is definitely a good point. Although, I wonder, uh, I really don't have an answer for this, but I, I do wonder if survival games were 
already going to be popular, they were already sort of readied to to have a boom, or if early access itself sort of uh, supported that and actually was was super well suited for that style of game. And, yeah, yeah, I think, boy, that does seem like a, a total chicken and egg where the two things arrive yeah. and they begin supporting <laughs> each other immediately. Yeah. Because um, it certainly was easy to rush out. And I think it's getting harder now, thank God. But for a while it did seem like, oh, we haven't completed a damn thing, but it's a survival game, so don't worry. We're just gonna put you in this little like shitty play area and <laughs> see how long you can how long you can live. As far as how agile has changed the industry, I think that's a question for um, for developers, but you know, to my way of thinking, you know, back when I was hearing a lot of utopian discussions of like what agile can do for you and all this stuff. Yeah. Um work remains work. There's never going to be a silver bullet that solves the ills of software development and the shitty way this industry often runs. Yeah. Um, I think as far as that goes, Agile probably hasn't contributed to greater quality of life or greater product output. Uh, It's probably just contributed to perhaps a slightly more organic process to uh, developing games. Yeah. Well said. Our next email comes from Ahmed. Uh, he writes, Hey R&D, I really enjoyed your last episode of Idle Weekend, Batman Academy, where you discussed <laughs> the parallels of the Bat's extremely self-serious persona. To me, Batman will always exist on a spectrum. To the very right, you have Christopher Nolan's Batman. This is a Batman who is always portrayed as a tragic fallen figure, incapable of cracking a smile or telling a joke, and is the best self-sufficient agent on Gotham's anti-terrorism unit. Uh, On the far left of the side of the spectrum, you can see the king of the one-liner, the man who can plot infinite moves ahead, and a universe where anything can happen due to magic and comic book logic. (laughs) Uh, The difference between the left and right spectrum of Batman is not so much the static character of Batman himself, but the amount of magic and wacky figures portrayed in the universe around him. Hmm. In many ways, all Batman in the Arkham series are super roidy, top-heavy characters who just strolled through their various settings, beating up criminals, and thinking in improvisational methods to get out of tough binds. However, the Arkham series has struggled to find its footing as to what Batman should be on screen. I think Batman Arkham Asylum is a bit in the middle, leaning right. You have a good chance of, you have a good balance of stealth and action, but, and the plot deviates from magical tropes, uh, even though characters like Poison Ivy and Killer Croc are still portrayed true to their comic book forms. But while this game has a good balance of stealth and action, the Batman's detective abilities only take place in cutscenes and in detective mode vision, which both <laughs> of which hardly count. Arkham City probably went as far left as the Arkham series has ever gone. The main plot speaks volumes about its tone, as the game centers around the use of a fictional drug called Titan. Boy, I had forgotten entirely about Titan, which oh, says a yeah. lot about Arkham, C- Arkham City, <laughs> uh, and its fictional consequences. This game portrays the Batman universe as more of a magical place, which got more of a controversial reception from the community than the developers were hoping. Over the course of the next two games, the Arkham series still hasn't found its place, but is seemingly converging on one setting. To put this in the form of a question, where do you think Arkham Origins is on the spectrum? <laughs> uh, furthermore, where on the spectrum is your favorite rendition of Batman, meaning how much of the universe should be based on magic and mythos, and how much in gritty and grimy reality? Well, that's a question for you, Rob. At least the origins part. Yeah, I think the the, the second part's definitely a, a broader question. Yeah. For origins, um, origins is definitely cutting down on the weirdness of of Arkham City. 
it's it's definitely a more a more grounded uh a, gr- a more grounded narrative i think it is uh very much i think it's i think it's pretty far right uh to be honest and that it's very much a batman who is uh isolated from a lot of the people around him um it's a batman who is you know practically enemies with with jim gordon at the start uh alfred uh is already doing that very concerned alfred thing uh where you know the basically the first scene uh are you know you've got alfred sort of questioning the whole nature of this this quest that bruce is on uh and whether or not that any of this is a good idea so i think it it tends to be i think it's a little more grounded it feels a little bit less magical up to a point, like any plot where Black Mask is, is your main adversary, uh, <laughs> is you can only be so grounded uh, where, where Black Mask, Mask is concerned. As far as favorite rendition of Batman, um, I'm going to punt a little bit on this and say that my favorite version of Batman is also the one, I think, that played very fast and loose with to what degree it was a magical universe and that would be mm-hmm. batman the animated series sure uh there are episodes where that is a very grounded universe uh there's where, where there's not much all that where there's not very much weird happening at all um robin's reckoning is basically a small time mafia enforcer uh it, you know kills robin's family and then spends years hiding under the protection of his his father, you know the um, the Don basically, and then yeah. years and years later, Robin comes of age and just goes on uh, this absolute crusade to go to go bring in Tony Zuko uh, and and to get revenge on this guy. There is not a single, there is nothing paranormal or magical about that storyline at all. On the other hand, that same series gives you an episode. Where Batman's girlfriend, where Bruce's girlfriend, meet, Bruce meets a researcher, and I think she's body switched with an intelligent cyborg midway through, Good. who tries to kill him. But I think one of the cyborgs, I think there might be another cyborg that like either falls in love with Bruce or doesn't know it's a cyborg. But point is, you got magical robots, and it's very like questionable con- content uh, level of like realism about like uh, computing. And then I think the first episode they ever aired was about somebody who was uh, taking taking bat serum and oh, flying good. around the goddamn city as a man bat, which good. people reasonably concluded was Batman, uh, who just snapped and was <laughs> like doing lots of weird shit. So I mean, I think Batman the animated series it was kind of um, it, it kind of was whatever it needed to be episode to episode, which is why I think that series ended up working really well. It also sort of was in keeping with the game's, uh, with, not the game, with the series theme of where and when does Batman the Animated Series take place? It's nowhere. Like, it's, it's, it's nowhere in time. It's, it's like kind of a 1930s culture, but some of the technology and the vernacular is really modern. A lot of the concepts are really modern, but everything's trapped in this weird Art Deco version of reality. Um, the Gotham police fly these weird, like, stylish little zeppelins over the city. Like, what the hell is that universe? It, 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 isn't, it isn't happening in a time and place. It's not in our reality. It's similar. It, it evokes a hundred different things. But you can't pin it down. And it allows it to be everything. 
Oh, I really like Batman as wacky as possible. I think. You want that Adam I, West. Yeah, I, Batman 66 is pretty great uh, and beautiful and weird and, and kind of awesome in that way. I really liked the Tim Burton Batman movies. They're, you know, like you said uh, recently, that they were, uh, the second one especially is sort of like a Batman fairy tale. I really uh, need to cool. watch that again because, yeah, yeah like, me too. Cause it's been a little while. But, yeah, and I just, I was so down on it because I just wanted it to be like more of the first Batman movie. And mm-hmm. really, it's a Tim Burton movie that happens to be about Batman. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love the first one. It's great. I, I, I like it when it's wacky. I even like the terrible fucking 90s uh, oh, Joel Schumacher. Oh, man. I mean, like, the shitty one-liners nope. from Mr. Freeze. Can't do oh, it. Oh, yeah. I mean, because, like, fundamentally, it understands that this shit is very ridiculous. And, like, I'm so okay with that. I'm also, like, I will admit this. I am so down with camp. Like, when yeah. camp is 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 uh, is is fun and, and used for, for good intentions, I guess. Like, I, I love it and I enjoy it. And, like... Uh, I know that other people have a different tolerance for camp, and that's okay. That's cool. I have a much higher tolerance for camp than grimdark, just mm. in general in life. Uh, you know, yeah. Okay. And, it's and just... I will. Devi- I will. Like, I'm okay with camp, but like, I'm yeah. definitely more on the grimdark spectrum. Sure. Sure. That, I think you know, that's the, I won't, the core. Difference. I won't hold it against you, Rob. I won't hold it against you. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I like look. I pretty much love all versions of of this character. I think there's so many different ways to interpret it. Uh, it can be a yeah. uh, really like haunting American tragedy. Um, in in uh, oh god, what's the um, what's the detective series? Gotham Central. In Gotham Central, oh, yeah, uh, it's just a police procedural. Uh, it's basically an Ed McBain novel with with superheroes running around. Sure. Uh, I love I love all this stuff. Um, and I think it's. I think what makes it fascinating is the different approaches to the the setting. Um, I will say I don't. I don't fully agree that Batman's always the same. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adam West, Batman is really extremely wry about the entire thing. Like, doesn't he even say like some days you can't get rid of a bomb? <laughs> like, there's there's yeah. all these there's all these great lines. Um, so like he's he's pretty far from from the sort of unsmiling grim dark figure. Although maybe Adam West is trying to maybe what makes it so funny is that Adam West is being so straight man about the entire thing, which is very <laughs> yeah. Batman, but like it it's patently ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Yes. Uh, I love I just love seeing different interpretations of it. Yeah, it is cool. I I really do love the sort of modern mythology of it. I I like the modern mythology aspect of a lot of superheroes. Yes. Movies, I, I like that better than the movies themselves in a lot of cases, for sure. Uh, but it, it, it works for me. Like, it is sort of a fascinating thing to see things constantly reinterpreted and uh, uh, have such incredible differences in tone and sort yeah. of what they're saying about the world. That is oh, rad man. and fascinating. Yeah. As a side note, Danielle. Yes. I was on a long plane ride the other day. Oh, yeah? And I tried to watch Batman vs. Superman. Oh. And boy, coming on oh, the yeah. heels of Superman Returns, oh. what an utter shit show. Like, <laughs> all the hate is righteously deserved. Like, yeah. I didn't think Man of Steel was that bad, but like, 
holy shit, what a terrible interpretation and execution of, like, literally everything in this universe. Superman, as far as I can tell, like, has no inner life whatsoever. He's just, he's just a piece of shit. He's just, <laughs> he's just a Superman who sucks. <laughs> yeah, he just, like, floats around and looks really stern. And is like, what should I do with my powers? It's like, God, you're terrible. God, Lord. you're terrible. Just, yeah. That, w- bring back that nice boy who just wanted to reconnect with his friends and family. That's right. The nice boy who has a life. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's your anti weekend project. But uh, yeah. do you have do you have a another weekend project? Something no, you've, I, I you've suspect perhaps we might been enjoying? One. Oh, excellent! What is it? So this morning, I don't because I knew nothing about this 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 show. This morning, yeah. I just tried out Legion. Oh, perfect! On FX. Yes, yes, yes. And it's free Good. on Amazon Instant. First episode is free. Um, I haven't watched the second episode yet, but the power, the pilot is like over an hour long, solid yep. hour. And holy hell, it was like one of the best pilots I've ever seen. Like I would mm-hmm. put it in the conversation with the Americans pilot episode. Oh, um, damn. As just a tour de force of style and hopefully a statement of intent. Yes. Um, and something that is constantly keeping you on your toes. Uh, boy, where to start with this thing? Um. I think what I really loved about it, not like going into it, I barely like I wasn't really even aware that it was a comic book thing. Mm-hmm. Going into it, what I was presented with was a fascinating and unsettling like psychological suspense film yeah. uh, that all seemed to be inspired by like, um, like British sci-fi, um, like sixties like mod aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, like for a long for a long part of this episode, I, I thought it was in fact like set in like yes. the same time period as like the prisoner, for instance. Totally, yeah. Um, but I think the, the 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 fundamental thing that that it does really really effectively, and I hope it doesn't become like over reliant on this trick. But it's a show about a character uh, who appears to be like paranoid, delusional, and potentially schizophrenic. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a constant fear throughout that episode of what the hell is real and what is not. Um, And it is unsettling and it's bizarre. And it's also really sympathetic because there is no... The entire thing is told from the perspective of uh, this, this, this main character. And you have no really outside perspective on him. Maybe you have his sister... Uh, who, yeah. who who cares for him? She's the, you know, playing the role of the family member who is struggling to handle a relative's mental illness. But you're fundamentally like trapped in his head, and so his fear and doubt about what the hell is happening and what perceptions of his he can trust absolutely become yours. And I think that really makes the this pilot episode really take off because throughout the entire thing, you're sort of sitting there being like, okay. But did you really see that? Did right. that, did that conversation yes. actually happen? Yeah. God, I, I just loved it. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I actually just watched the second episode today. Um, and it's so strong. And it does not fail on the promise of that first episode. I will say that thus far. I, I watched it... Um, I watched the first episode a few days ago, and then I watched the second one today, and I am I'm blown away by how much it feels like a show that cares about its characters and yeah. not a superhero show, if that makes sense. Uh, not to 
take a shit on all superhero shows. I think Jessica Jones does this very well. Uh, but might be the only for, one for the that deserves to be in a conversation with the series. To be yeah. honest, I I think so too. Um, it feels like a show that's actually like a drama, like a like you said, a really good psychological drama, uh, where your perception of reality and David's perception of reality are sort of one and the same, and that's such a great and smart cinematic trick, like that that sort of uh, the way you're framed, the way the point of view is framed, and the way that like did that really happen or uh, was this person actually real or is this a, a hallucination? Like it's, it's wonderful to see the revelation of how that all kind of plays out as you're watching the show and as David is maybe figuring some things out, which is, oh yeah. God, it's so good. Well, it's, it's so good. And I, like Ugh. Danielle, I went in so cold. I literally didn't yeah. know where it was headed. I didn't know it was a Marvel thing. Really. Neither like, did I. <laughs> so I'm watching it and I'm like, yeah. Is this just going to be a, like a psychological horror series? Like, there's conversations where I'm like, characters are interacting with, and I'm thinking like, is this person lying? Like, some it feels like somebody's fucking lying here, but you don't know because it could be like, well, actually, like David's just really disturbed. Like, it always feels like yeah. people are lying to him. It always feels like people are trying to control him, uh, and it really keeps you guessing about that until this one amazing tracking shot where it changes the game. Uh, oh, and there's yeah. there's two tracking shots. There's two Steadicam shots in this episode uh, that I think really deserve to be called out. Uh, you'll know them when you see them. But both like both shots serve the function of transforming your understanding of the world and the story you're watching in the course of like a minute, minute and a half of like continuous rolling on a character. Yeah. Um, it's it is so damn impressive. Um, and I, I just love the aesthetic and the photography uh, in yes. the series and the editing oh. as well. Like, it is so, none of that, you know, cool color temperature, um, you know, like hyper-realistic lens. It's very much leaning into the color palette and warmth and brightness of, like, um, atomic age, uh, like yeah. futurism. Yeah. And that makes it all the more enticing and and sort of like going along with what I was saying about Batman the animated series earlier today, and I think we were talking about this on Twitter earlier today. I have no idea where this takes place, when, or yes. what the rules of this universe are. <laughs> I have literally sure. no idea. Which is so great, and it, and it's like a weird obsession of mine. The whole first episode, I was like, "Is this in the '60s?" And then I I picked up on a few like weird little anachronisms, like somebody's using a tablet. The computers are way too small to be from the '60s. There's like '80s style computers, and there are a few other anachronisms in the in the second episode. And I was like, "Oh, they're doing the Archer thing, yeah, uh, where it's like it's like very deliberately sort of pulling on different styles and different technology from different times to kind of." both have a, a, a sense of timelessness and also have a sense of what the fuck is going on here. Like, you're always a little bit unsettled by that, I think, by the, at least I was, uh, by the sort of, when the fuck is this yeah. <laughs> kind of sense, uh, which I really like when a show does that, when a show has both such a sense of style and also a sense of, like, you're not going to know where this is placed. Well, uh, it gives it sort of an yeah. intriguing timelessness uh, as, yes. as well. It's uh, It's... It, it takes place in the... Like, I like feeling like it's a little divorced from my reality. That It's not yeah. always trying to be shoehorned into the world that we understand. It's like uh, sort of doing its own thing. It's 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 it's, it's an Earth 2 uh, type, type yeah. approach to things. Uh, something else that... We're, we're burying the lead a little bit here. Um, yeah. 
the writer and creator for this series is uh, Noah Hawley. Oh. Uh, from oh. Fargo, the TV series. Yeah. Yes, yes, and, yes. And uh, you you may have noticed, it was during me during the episode, and uh, it wasn't <gasps> until afterwards I, I looked up who she was. Um, Sid Barrett, who is uh, the potentially illusory love interest of the pilot episode, um, <laughs> yep. is played by Rachel Keller, who was the, um, the daughter of the sort of the crime boss in uh, Fargo season two. Um, yeah, the, the that was who, driving me insane. The one insane. whose uncle yes. takes her out into the woods and uh, yep. and, 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 and executes Bear. her. Uh, for, Bear's big moment, yeah. Yeah, sure. uh, which, oh, talk about a brutal scene, uh, brutal episode. But yeah, uh, yeah. so, like, I think once I figured out that it was, it was the Fargo guy, like, suddenly mm-hmm. a lot of things made sense. And that's when I started yeah. to, like, really get excited because... He's definitely approaching it with more of like, I'm making an avant-garde FX series than a Marvel series. Um, yeah, this right. series doesn't seem to give a shit about the Marvel verse, uh, which I kind of like. Yeah, it's oh, I'm really loving it so far. And I also like one other thing I I just have to give props to is Aubrey Plaza in this show. Oh my show god, is so amazing. Please let oh. her be part of this cast in some form or another. Like yeah. moving forward, yeah. I I am. I've always liked Aubrey Plaza. I've always liked her sort of very off kilter little kind of comedy routine. But she is taking it to a new level here, and it's also very like endearing. Yeah, uh, it's a very sort of girl interrupted, but a, a lot higher fidelity, I guess. Let's say uh, sort of performance. Um, very very. You know, this is uh, a lot of it takes place in a, a ostensibly in a mental institution uh, where David is, and it's sort of like his best friend Lenny is Aubrey Plaza, and she's sort of this like completely off the walls, like oh, you know, she's she's doing the 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 sort of Angelina Jolie from uh, from Girl Interrupted, but with so much more weight well, to it. <laughs> and I, I, I guess. love that she's got this. She is an old hand at institutional yeah. life yes. and mental yes. illness. Like there's moments where like she quietly confirms to David that like he is in fact seeing someone. Like something yeah. is actually there. Somebody's there. And she needs yeah. to like you and David's someone who needs that watch out. Needs you know, yeah. needs someone, a second pair of eyes to affirm, like, yeah, that's happening. That is something you that is real. Um yeah, she is very much the uh to a degree like you know, even even in a pivotal scene where all hell is breaking loose in the institution, she's still sort of the person who's like trying to keep everyone chill. And just like you know, we're all we're all institutionalized here. Let's everyone just like take a step back and like just chill. Yeah, um, yeah no, what what a great performance. Oh yeah, I, I really love her in this. Um, if if we're okay to step away from Legion, which I know yeah. we will return to, because I I think this is something we're both going to probably yeah. stick with. Uh, I watched something on my birthday this week that was uh, also a little bit in a in an altered reality, I suppose, but but somewhat. Uh, Somewhat grounded in the real world, and that is John Wick Chapter Two, uh, the the second movie in the improbably amazing John Wick <laughs> series. I don't know. Did you see the first one at all? Uh, yeah, I, I saw it not that not that long ago, uh, just a few weeks. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, John Wick kind of came out of nowhere for me. I I had no oh, interest yeah. in it Looks really, super bad. and then. Yeah, it looked stupid. John it Wick like, is oh. back, and it's Keanu Reeves, and yeah. I'm like, none of these things inspire me. 
Exactly. Uh, and it was just this, like, really awesome, super tight, uh, beautifully choreographed action movie that has Keanu Reeves playing Keanu Reeves, basically. I mean, obviously, like, heightened action movie doofy tropes or whatever. Uh, but it, it leans full on into Keanu being Keanu, basically. Uh, which is great and wonderful. And the second one does this oh, just so beautifully as well. It's a... Uh, it's definitely a direct continuation plot-wise, and it and it delves a little deeper into this world, this sort of mysterious world of assassins and, and killers and and uh, this entire sort of beautiful, stylish, and weird underworld. Uh, but the real, I think the real draw of, of both John Wick and the second movie are these just elaborately choreographed and just incredibly beautifully shot fight scenes, uh, especially fight scenes that... Uh, as you were saying earlier about the you know the really long shots in Legion, well there there are there are fight scenes that that are like you know long shots, which never happens anymore in in cinema. The the Jason Bournes of the world have made incredibly short uh, hyper editing uh, you know hundreds of shots in a fight scene kind of thing, very very typical. And this is like. No, this is this is choreographed. This is ballet with punching, basically. Incredible long shots that are that are moving all over the place and take uh there's one scene I no, you know, I'm not gonna spoil anything, obviously, but there's one scene that takes place in a sort of mirror exhibit at an art show, uh, where I legitimately was sitting there like, how the fuck did they film this? Like long shots with mirrors mirroring several different images at the same time while people are fighting and not sure what's a real sort of person or a mirror image and then incredible long tracking shots where people are are descending spiral staircases with all these mirrors around them and it was just like holy jesus fuck how did they film this without getting (laughs) anything in the shot from the from the actual like massive camera team that needed to be there to do this you know like it was incredible. Just a, a really enjoyable movie that that you know moves quickly and has these really sort of iconic uh, characters. And and I just love watching ageless Keanu be ageless Keanu. It's it's kind of wonderful and, and fun. And you know he gets his little one liners and his little yeah. You know like he, yeah. he doesn't really need to act, and that's something the movie totally leans into, which is great and perfect in the way it should be. Um, and then, and then otherwise, you know, he's he's kind of this lovable guy that he's very compelling, even though he's not. There's not he doesn't say much, you know. He's just action guy who loved a puppy and loved his wife, <laughs> you know. And that's all Those it needs the two to character be. Notes. And yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I, I think when you're we're talking about Mr. Reeves, that's that's good. That's a good. Yeah. That's what you need. Uh, oh, that's so good. Um, and and just. Man, <laughs> I, I am so relieved. Is to hear it that's fun a good to watch? Because I was I was terrified yeah. after seeing the first one. I was like, okay, so they got away with one. Somehow that turned out to be amazing. <laughs> but like, right. boy, I wonder how the, how going back to the well will work out for them. And they and they definitely, I think it actually takes a little while to warm up. Even though there's a, a sort of a good, you know, exciting chase scene at the beginning, I wasn't a hundred percent into it until kind of the towards the end of the first third of the film when I was like, oh, okay, they really found their rhythm again, and it and it doesn't stop. It actually weirdly made me feel like uh, watching a really awesome Hitman escalation kind of thing, yeah. like like a perfectly choreographed, holy shit, things were going wrong, but they made it right kind of thing. Uh, there, there's just a real... Oh, 
there's a real beauty to the the filming of these fight scenes that I I find incredibly appealing and and really fun to watch. And of course, there's nothing realistic about any of it. It's it's a complete cartoon, uh, it, it, you know, complete live action cartoon, uh, which is totally fine and cool. And it was like a really good thing to do. Uh, as just like, you know what? It's my birthday. Fucking, it's a Monday night. I'm gonna I'm gonna go see a movie. Like like, honey, you tell my girlfriend like. You know what I want to do tonight? Let's eat a lot of food and a lot of popcorn and just see a fucking good action movie. So it was it was kind of perfect for that. So uh yeah. John Wick chapter 2. Worth your worth your damn yeah. <laughs> All right. I will uh I'll well I probably won't make time for it. I'll probably get to it when it comes out on the Blu-ray. But I'm yeah, looking forward which to is it now. Fine. Yeah. It's fine. Like you know However you watch it, I think is good. And I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. <laughs> to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you spending some time with us, and we would appreciate it even more if you got the word out and uh, told your friends, told your neighbors, told your pets, told your tragically, uh, you know, uh, unpuppied action star friends, told anybody that you think might enjoy Idol Weekend. It helps us out so, so much. And if you have a moment to rate us on iTunes, that also helps us. We really do appreciate it. It means the world to us. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Mm-hmm.